I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Janai S. Nelson is the Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. But next month, Nelson will become the eighth President and Director Counsel of the legendary civil rights organization founded by Thurgood Marshall before he became the first African American to sit on the Supreme Court. Nelson will succeed Sherilyn Eiffel, whose name has been bandied about as someone who could fulfill President Biden's promise that the next Supreme Court justice will be a black woman. In this conversation, first recorded on February 16th for Washington Post Live, Nelson and I talked about the racism and sexism that awaits whomever Biden nominates. We're ready for that battle and we're ready to point out and call out those instances where black women are being subject to a different standard or being interrogated in ways that are inappropriate or where assumptions are made about their capacity that are unfounded and unfair and unjust. Nelson also talks about her hero, famed jurist Constance Baker Motley, and the lessons she's learned from Sherilyn Eiffel. Ms. Nelson, welcome to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. It's wonderful to see you. So, as we know, February is Black History Month. Black women are the foundation of that history, American history. Who are the women who inspired you? There are so many women that have inspired me throughout my life and throughout my career. First and foremost, my mother. She is uh, the rock upon which I stand, and uh, I love her dearly, and she has been an inspiration throughout my life. But there are so many professional women, so many women lawyers that I admire and look up to. Um, I'd say that among the many are, of course, Constance Baker Motley, who is in the uh, iconography of what it means to be an incredibly zealous and brilliant advocate, fearless, relentless, and committed to the cause of equal justice and civil rights. She also is one of the first female lawyers at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She was one of the architects of Brown versus Board of Education, which as you know, dismantled American apartheid. And she was a mother. She was a community member. She was um, a, a second, a first generation, second generation immigrant. I mean, she checked so many different boxes in terms of what it means to be an American and what it means to be a leader in this country. And she is one of the women that I admire greatly, but I could probably go on and on about (laughs) millions of others that I do as well. Well, let's keep talking about her because Tomiko Brown-Nagan, author of the new book, Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality, recently told Washington Post Live, quote, historical significance and leadership are essentially coded male. Talk about the impact that's had on recognition of the contributions of black women in our history. I think one of the one of the um, easiest ways to point to the limitations that have been placed on black women is the fact that we still have not yet had a, a black woman as a Supreme Court justice. And you have extraordinarily qualified people like Constance Baker Motley, who was a federal district court judge, in fact, the very first black woman to become a federal district court judge, but was not elevated as she should have been uh, based on her record, based on 
her experience based on uh, her enormous potential to be one of the most excellent jurists that this country has ever known. And that glass ceiling that is uh, you know, doubly thick for black women is something that uh, I'm acutely aware of in the profession still. And it's a loss for this country not to have the, the best and the brightest persons available for any and all positions in this country. Black women have been shut out of those positions for too long. Constance Baker Motley was a trailblazer, but we're talking about decades ago, and the uh, numbers of firsts that are still happening today are far too many. Well, let's talk about why that glass ceiling is doubly thick, maybe even triply thick for, for black women. You've said black women, quote, simultaneously endure entrenched racism and sexism, the compounding effects of which often mean that their experiences of violence and racism are suppressed or overlooked. Now that we're about to see a black woman named, nominated to the Supreme Court, talk about how that entrenched racism and sexism will bear itself out in that instance. Well, I think we can all be optimistic and hopeful that it won't be uh, the, the uh, unfortunate display that we've seen in the Senate with respect to other nominees, but we are bracing ourselves for this to be a significant um, interrogation of the many qualified nominees that might become the final nominee of, of this White House. I am uh, certain that we will see sexism, we will see racism, we will see the intersection of those two in the questioning and the uh, doubts about qualifications. But what has been wonderful is looking at the numerous lists of people that would be overqualified, as some have said, to be on the Supreme Court. And so we're ready for that conversation, we're ready for that battle, and we're ready to point out and call out those instances where black women are being subject to a different standard or being uh, interrogated in ways that are inappropriate or where assumptions are made about their capacity that are unfounded and unfair and unjust. You know, speaking of that, I was just trying to find the full the full um, quote from Senator John Kennedy, who is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, somebody who will have a, a vote in whether the nominee gets voted out of committee. And he said he had two concerns. The first one he mentioned was, I want a nominee who knows a law book from a J. Crew catalog. Now, in that statement, there's race isn't mentioned, sex isn't mentioned. But I know in my gut what he's talking about. Talk about how, assuming you also find that offensive, why is that offensive? It is deeply offensive and it calls into question his ability to be an objective uh, uh, member of the Senate to properly advise and consent on whether a future nominee is in fact qualified and appropriate. That is laden with assumptions about gender and sex and capacity and uh, frivolity that is just embedded in that statement. It is deeply concerning that he would feel that he has license to make that statement in advance of, uh, of, of vetting a nominee. And I think we need to pay close attention and begin to hold elected officials accountable when they make statements that reveal that they are perhaps incapable themselves of fulfilling the duties of the positions for which they've been elected.
Mm-hmm. I, I, I have said that the 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 names of the women who've been mentioned as potential nominees to the Supreme Court are they're more qualified than a lot of the people who were nominated before them, and certainly not who could be nominated after them. But you know, one of the names that's been mentioned as a potential nominee is Sherilyn Eiffel, who currently runs the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund for about another month uh, until until you uh, succeed her. But talk about the significance of a black woman, no matter who is chosen, sitting on the high court. Well, it will be something that um, I think will be a game changer in terms of how we understand the law and its impact on a segment of society that doesn't often get its day in court and doesn't often have its voice heard. And that is the segment of black women who uh, fuel this country in so many ways, who are on the front lines defending our democracy, uh, putting their bodies on the line, to, and compromising themselves in many ways to ensure that we uphold our constitutional ideals. We're talking about black women who suffer a significant wage gap in the economy, black women who are becoming incarcerated at an increasingly rapid rate, and black women who are at the margins of society in so many ways. We will now have someone on the court who has some sense of what um, any one of those experiences might be. And whether they've personally experienced it, observed it, have relatives who may have those experiences, or just having been and being a member of that broader community makes them more attuned to those conditions. And I look forward to seeing that perspective um, uh, borne out in the decisions that are made, in uh, the colloquy among the justices on the court, and to influence how we interpret laws that will affect black women, all women, and other marginalized groups in our society. Will the LDF play a role in helping to shepherd the eventual nominee through the process? Well, the Legal Defense Fund has been actively involved in judicial nominations for decades. We uh, take this very seriously, as you might imagine, as an organization whose uh, uh, you know trade is to litigate in addition to our many other advocacy tools. We care deeply about the composition of the Supreme Court and deeply about the composition of all of our federal courts and state courts. We have advocated vigorously uh, for more diversity on the court, diversity not only of race and ethnicity, but of professional background. And I have to say, we're quite pleased to see uh, the judiciary diversifying uh, rapidly under President Biden's uh, uh, leadership. However, I will say that in this process, we will be paying close attention to how this nominee is vetted and shepherded through the process. We will not stand by and allow a nominee to be uh, uh, disrespected or disregarded inappropriately. Uh, any nominee should be subject to the scrutiny that any other justice uh, would be subject to. We always uh, or often write a report and, and dig deep into the records of any nominee for the Supreme Court, and we will do just the same for this nominee. However, this nominee must be treated with the same respect and the same fairness that any nominee for the Supreme Court would be. And that is something that we will be paying close attention to. What do you say to those those people who might, as with the, as with the Senator Kennedy comment, where it doesn't 
like flash bright red, um, doesn't have all the key words that, you know, get people to think, ah, oh, sexism, ah, oh, racism. What, what do you say to folks who will hear, because you and I both know we are going to hear some very coded, thinly veiled, racist things, sexist things, misogynistic things about the nominee. What do you say to folks um, to prepare them for things that might not to them be obvious in the moment? Well, what I want to say first and foremost is that the media has a a very significant responsibility in this. Uh, The media has an obligation to point out those subtleties, to to disrobe uh, what are cloaked offenses and uh, assumptions and presumptions about this nominee that might be unfair and that might tilt the process in a way uh, that that compromises what should be an out, the appropriate outcome. So the media to me is, is first and foremost responsible in translating some of this for the public. And of course, organizations like the Legal Defense Fund um, who are uh, out there talking about um, the way in which the court is critically important as a third arm of our government, that any process that leads to the uh, confirmation of a justice must be free and fair of bias and prejudice. And we will, as I said, be paying close attention to how this process unfolds. And this administration also has an obligation to protect its nominee and to make sure that that nominee is treated fairly. So there are a lot of uh, ways in which we can call it out and ways in which we can make it more difficult for those types of um, assaults or missives to land or have any effect. But the first the first way to do that is to to name it and uh, un- unveil it for what it is and not let it be misinterpreted uh, by, by anyone, by any member of the public who may not fully appreciate some of the subtleties of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, let's switch gears here because this month marks 10 years since the death of Trayvon Martin. Talk about the impact of his death and the Black Lives Matter movement sparked by it. Uh, His death and so many others have fueled a movement that I think has been one of the most transformative movements of uh, our generation. It's been a catalyst for uprisings and an outpouring of uh, action and emotion, not just in this country, but across the globe. And it is still what I think is going to fuel what I know will be a, a re-envisioning of public safety in this country and a rededication to uh, core principles of what it means to be an American and to uphold the ideals of this country that have never been uh, completely fulfilled. Mm-hmm. I think seeing that type of injustice up close, seeing the killing of young black children uh, indiscriminately by law enforcement, by would-be law enforcement vigilantes, uh, those who want to take the law into their own hands. Those are are instances where racism just can't be denied, where the denigration of black humanity and black dignity is something that you simply cannot turn away from. That is why we saw so many people pouring into the streets in 2020 when we saw the heinous murder and callous murder of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis. And that I believe is something that is talking to the hearts and the core of our American public and saying, we will take 
no more of this. Of course, there have been divisions since. There, are, it's a complicated issue to solve, and it is it is is not something that um, will be solved overnight. If it were, it would have been solved a long time ago. But I do believe that it is the catalyst that will galvanize young people uh, across generations, across uh, ethnic backgrounds and economic backgrounds, to have us rethink the society we want to be in the United States. You know, as you know, the fight for equality and social justice is often described as one step forward, two steps back. Where are we right now in that continuum, do you think? Well, you know, we've made a number of strides. I definitely uh, would say that we are holding, we're trying to hold the line, not to swing, not to have the pendulum swing uh, backwards. But there's, there's, there's no way that we can deny the fact that there is retrenchment, that there is a resurgence of bold white supremacy, uh, unlike that we unlike anything we've seen in recent decades. We've always known that it was there, that it was latent, that it was an invisible force uh, working and wreaking havoc in our society. But now it's been laid bare. We see protests in the street. We see um, uh, attacks not only on individuals, but threats to HBCUs. We're uh, seeing school boards and teachers and administrators being threatened for simply telling the truth of our history. And there's no denying that that is regression, that that is not a, a step forward. That is certainly a step back. But I don't think we have to step all the way back. There is still an opportunity to use that this moment to recognize and to show that the people who are advancing um, this very divisive movement are a minority in this country. And, and it's mm -hmm. easy to forget that because their actions are often, you know, headlines and their actions are, are often, uh, uh, there's often a spotlight on what they do and not enough attention on the ways in which we are unified against those efforts. But there's more that we can do to redouble our opposition to this effort to take us backwards, uh, to make sure that we have the backs of our teachers and the backs of our students who want a culturally responsive, inclusive, culturally and critically rigorous education, uh, which is what the confrontation of our history requires and demands and something that we should embrace. Our children are strong enough for this. They can handle the truth of our history because it will only fortify them in the fight to make the future even better. Janae, what does it mean to you to be taking over as president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund? It means the honor of a lifetime. Uh, this is a legacy institution, a Black-founded legacy institution that has been at the center of holding our democracy accountable to itself. And to be at the helm at this critical time when our democracy is at a crossroads is not only a challenge, it is a privilege and it is an honor. And that is mainly because of uh, the work of past presidents and director councils who have developed and nurtured this organization and have solidified its reputation and the staff that fuels the work that we do and the clients who are at the center of everything that we do at the Legal Defense Fund. It's why we exist. Uh, they are the core of our mission. 
And it is, as I said, the honor of a lifetime mm-hmm. to be in this position what, at this moment. Mm-hmm. What legacy does Sherilyn Eiffel leave? And what's the biggest lesson you've learned from her? Well, uh, I think it's hard to summarize Sherilyn's legacy uh, uh, in, a, in a short soundbite. But I would say she's left a legacy of, of transformation and visionary leadership. She has shown not only through her brilliant legal strategy and thinking through uh, the, the critical interventions that were needed on, on the front of litigation and research and policy and organizing, but also the ways in which institutions like the Legal Defense Fund need to be fortified in order to ensure that there are checks on our society when they face their darkest moments as we did uh, and as, as we still are facing now. So her legacy will be one of, of transformation and fortification. And that is the legacy that I plan to build on with the wonderful staff and team that we have here at the Legal Defense Fund. And there's so many lessons that I've learned in the nearly nine years that she and I have been partnering together here at the Legal Defense Fund. Uh, but the takeaway really is to be is to be unrelenting and unapologetic about our commitment and dedication to equality and justice, that those are just causes for which we hold no shame and in fact, great pride uh, and, and great passion for advancing on behalf of black communities and on behalf of our democracy as a whole. Janae S. Nelson, currently Associate Director Counsel and but incoming president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart and Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. Good to be with you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.